Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I want to help you build a plan to become the kind of leader you want to be. Now, whether you are tuning in for the first time or are a regular listener, I'm glad to have you. If you want to be a nonprofit leader or maybe just more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would do me a favor, find the share button. Usually it's at the top of the episode graphic of the device you're holding right now. It's got three dots in it. Share this episode with just one other person. You can text it, you can email it, but you will help us continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I've got another fantastic conversation to share with you in this episode. It's with Nika Allen, who brings great experience as a successful fundraiser and a dynamic coach and consultant. Now, while Nika and I connected across the North American continent, she's actually in the British Columbia area of the Canadian West. We were very close on several topics that I know you will benefit from just as I did. Now, Nika has a unique ability to tell her powerful story across many generations of her family, as well as help you tell your story more effectively. But she's also lifting up some very important topics of equity and inclusion that continue to be very real for many of our colleagues of color in all areas of the philanthropic community. Even more helpful was the fantastic book that Nika co-edited called Collecting Courage, which she talks about the origins of that and how it brings to life the powerful stories from more than a dozen fundraisers of color. Lots to check out here, and I know you're going to want to see the show notes for this episode. It's number 142. Just go to the podcast or the news page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll find links to the resources Nika and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work she's doing through the Empathy Agency. Now, speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. We're on all of the social media platforms, including YouTube. You can get on our email list. It's at the bottom of the homepage. It's labeled free resources. You check it out there. You won't miss anything, including weekly episodes just like this one. Also on the bottom of the homepage, there's a want to chat button. We'd be happy to schedule a 15-minute call or a Zoom. We can learn more about your organization and maybe more importantly, more about your leadership journey in the nonprofit sector, especially if one of our unique small group mastermind leadership programs might be of interest. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Nika Allen. Nika, thank you for joining me on the path. Great to be with you. I'm excited to have this conversation, Nika. You have a fantastic career in the philanthropic sector as a fundraiser, as a coach, as a consultant. Uh, and you're also dealing with some of the tough issues, frankly, our sector needs to deal with. You're shedding light. You're creating conversation. And so that's why I'm excited to have this episode to allow you to focus on some of the things about which you have such passion. Um, you and I've talked before about the challenges of being a leader in the nonprofit or charitable sector. I wonder what are some of the key challenges you see as you interact with leaders in our nonprofit community? I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges facing our sector is the satisfaction with the status quo. Great point. The more and more I think about, you know, where we currently are and, you know, how we got here and where we ought to be going, you know, I start to think about Western philanthropy and, 
you know, how it's running out of donors and trust (laughs) and that our organizations, you know, promise to make real change in our society, but those changes aren't happening fast enough, if at all, in some cases. And people are finding alternative ways to make change and meet social needs. Platforms like GoFundMe, for instance, staff turnover is sky high in our sector. People of color are fleeing organizations because of racism and the harm that it's causing. Organizations are unwilling to partner and coordinate their efforts with mission-similar organizations. Nonprofits have become territories to be protected, in my experience, instead of movements of change. And, you know, all in all, I believe the charitable sector has forgotten where the power resides. Fred Hampton said, you know, the people have the power. It belongs to the people. I believe it's our job to inspire the people to use their power to make change. Instead, I think we stopped inspiring people through our work and instead we focus on convincing, you know, the 1% to share some of their wealth with us in an altruistic exchange and not a reciprocal one, one that means lasting change in our communities and brings us into deeper relationship with one another. That's so powerful and and right on target, Nika, I guess. Uh, there's some that are simply comfortable with the status quo, which is a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly in the privileged side of this equation. And then are, are, are you concerned that, that some who aren't sharing that privilege, uh, are they just kind of feeling beaten down and, and feel like their voice is not being heard? Is that, I guess, a frustration that you pick up from any of the leaders with which you're working? So the, the leaders that I work with, I don't know if frustration is the, the prevailing um, emotion. The leaders that I, I've been, you know, in touch with and that I work with are really very curious about where the solutions reside. Good. And so our paths intersect at that point, right? How can I join them on their journey to help them answer that question for themselves and for their organization? And so Do I think that there are leaders who are frustrated? Certainly there are, but I believe you have to get over that frustration and into a more humble place of understanding what the environment currently is and and how did it come to be that way and what our role and responsibility is in that environment. And then I think you can emerge with curiosity about the solution. I can tell the curiosity you have brought to your journey. You've been so thoughtful. In fact, I'm going to ask you about that. And I'm guessing that, of course, represents how you help people uh, be in similarly in a thoughtful manner, be reflective of what their journey has meant to them, and then being curious about these issues and frankly, not being satisfied with the status quo. And But I wonder, you know, you have been such a, a great ambassador for uh, your journey. I wonder if you could talk about that. You've embraced your family's history. So not just your journey, but the generations before you talk about how, uh, why you did that and how it's kind of shaping the work you're doing now. Absolutely. You know, the oral tradition of storytelling is very much alive in my family and the story of my freedom seeking ancestors on the maternal side of my family was told to me often as a young person, as a child, And knowing that story, uh, you know, we believe is a responsibility. And so we take it seriously. From young, I was told who and how people we met 
in our lives were related and connected to one another. And I believe knowing the, you know, the web of family connections in our local community is what let me know I was a part of something bigger, something more powerful, something more important. And that's the way we're all connected. And I grew up in the 70s and during Black Power and Pride, which was extremely tangible in my home. And right. it wasn't until I went to school that I was confronted with whiteness and how Blackness was perceived by white people. My educational career, I would, I would describe as a bit of an assault on my identity for sure. Right. Um, and it wasn't until 1999, I was an adult and, and a parent, uh, when I started working at a community museum in Amherstburg, Ontario, that I was reunited with the great things that my people had done to overcome enslavement and racism and the amazing things they became in the face of great oppression and pain. And it was during my time at the then North American Black Historical Museum, we were engaged in a restoration project of the Nazarene AME Church, which was a station on the Underground Railroad. And this work set me on a path of community movements and social change and a, and a desire to pursue justice. Uh, and, you know, I went on to spend 20 plus years in the charitable sector being the only Black woman in the room. Right. And my many experiences as a Black woman in a white profession is what began to shape me for the work that I would do and am doing now through the empathy agency. And so when I think about, I mean, that's a really condensed version of sort of my journey to where I am now, but it's all linked through this understanding of who my ancestors were and who I am, how those things are connected, the context I grew up in and the work that I saw proliferate around me in my community. You know, the only way that I believe Black people have survived enslavement is through community. Right. It is through our ability to connect with one another and to support one another. It was through our own version of philanthropy to one another that we were able to overcome, to, to escape, you know, bondage into um into a place where we were able to begin to determine our own destiny. Yeah, it's it's powerful, Nika. And, and you've embraced the powerful and the tragic nature of many of these stories that you lived through and, and certainly your ancestors did. And it, you know, how did it shape your kind of uh, obviously you were very successful as a, a fundraiser. And I, I'm guessing though, just as you are compelling in your storytelling, did you find that helped uh, generate philanthropic support, or did you run into barriers in, in your ability to raise funds for causes you knew were just? You know, it's interesting. Storytelling, I believe, is a, it sits at the center of our ability to effectively communicate our causes, you know, our missions, our visions, why people should invest in the change we seek to make. And so, that oral tradition for my family that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, benefited me in that from a young age, I was thinking in terms of stories. 
that's not necessarily unique because we all sort of think in that way. We think in terms of stories. Right. Um, and so it came very naturally to me to use that or to tap into that skill um, when I became a fundraiser. And so I believe that that, that is a, a key component to the success that I did have. Um, I didn't particularly have challenges raising money. The, the bulk of my challenges were in regards to the, the internal environment, the organizational space. Right, right. And not with my donors per se or the volunteers that I worked with. Because again, you know, that relationship building element that is inherent in any good fundraiser, um, I found, you know, stood me in good stead. And then my ability to um, communicate in, in impacting ways about the work that was being done or the change that we were seeking to make or through, through our organization either resonated or didn't resonate with people. And so for the people it resonated with, they were attracted to me and to the organization. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was fortunate in that the, the bulk of my challenges did not uh, come from donors. The bulk of my challenges were, were consistently from my, my superiors yep. and my colleagues. It's worth underscoring, and it's it's frustrating. I, I I I don't speak to understand generally what you've been through, but I do know from reading Collecting Courage, uh, these stories uh, often were internal, weren't they? You know, in other words, I know there's a lot of work to be done externally in the communities uh, and and around the philanthropic sector, but it seems like a lot of fundraisers of color like yourself, Nico, you were fighting battles just within your own office. That's right. Absolutely. And you're right. One of the defining or connecting moments or connecting pieces to each of our stories in Collecting Courage is the fact that the, the, the battles were predominantly waged within the organization with yep. your employer. Yep. You, you use in your speaking and writing, uh, which are both eloquent, I must say, uh, the, the, the phrase raising consciousness seems to be kind of a passion of yours. What do you mean by raising consciousness? And I'm guessing it might relate to some of the things we're talking about right now. You're exactly right. I think one of the best examples I can give is Collecting Courage, um, which is, as you know, an anthology by 15 Black nonprofit professionals about our experiences surviving racism in the charitable sector. But before Collecting Courage, Many of the conversations I was having well, were with white people denying the realities of racism. Right. Now these conversations are focused on questions like, what can I do? So we're no longer proving that our, oppres our oppression is real. We are now beginning to talk about how to stop the harm right. and change the environments where racism is happening. You know, this is something that I think is really powerful uh, about unified voices. So the unified voices in Collecting Courage validated each other, right? We documented our own stories and through our own documentation were inevitably 
validating our fellow editor, our, fe- our fellow authors stories, you know, all the authors wrote in isolation. No right. one knew what the other author uh, was writing uh, about. And it wasn't until the book was published that all of the authors had an opportunity to read what we had, you know, what the sum total of our work was. And I believe our collective voices and experiences were undeniable. Yeah, it was powerful and I guess sad in some ways, but but consistent, right, Nika? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's it's unfortunate the stories were so powerfully aligned, but I guess that reinforced exactly the reason you edited and put that together. And but is is there some progress? You you it, it sounds like you feel like we're not having to prove it as much. Doesn't mean it's gone away, but at least are you feeling there's some or a greater awareness of the challenges you and the other authors raised in the book? Yes, absolutely. I think for the people who've read the book, there is an acknowledgement on the part of, of most white people who've read it that they didn't know. Right. And, and, and now that they know their, their prevailing question is, so what can I do? What should I do? Well, and that, that's exactly my next question, you know, as, as someone who, uh, brings the privilege of whiteness to this kind of discussion. And you're right. As I reflect back, I'm like, I, I'm certainly wasn't as sensitive as I needed to be, uh, as I think about colleagues of color. So someone comes to you with that exact question. All right, Nick, I get it, or I'm trying to get it. How do you help someone like that who maybe is in a leadership position wanting to do better? Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, when people come to me initially, looking for support on on their journey towards greater racial equity, racial justice, you know, I I like to first, you know, lead with my own curiosity about what has their journey been? You know, where have they been? What has brought them to this place? Why are they pursuing racial justice now? Right. Um, Why is this important? What are the motivations? I like to share what my own motivations are. Right. And I think, you know, the things that I'm looking for um, in leaders who want to do this work with me are three, three really fundamental things, courage, humility and honesty. And I think, you know, that initial conversation in 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 those initial conversations, um, those things can be sensed, if you know what I mean. Right. Right. You know. It's also a personal journey and commitment. And so assessing one's, you know, willingness to enter into um, a personal transformation is also really key and very important. And then, you know, I like to just share with them, you know, what my philosophy is, like what my approach is, what my viewpoint is, because I believe being clear is kind. Brene Brown says that, and I love it. And so I like to be as clear as I possibly can about what it is I'm trying to do in this world through the work I do, through the coaching that I do. And I believe that when you put your own vision forward and that other people will reveal themselves. Yeah, I love that. Where it is they're trying to go. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but I. As 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 successful as you are as a storyteller, it sounds like you want to hear their story too, right? And you meet them, or at least better understand 
where they're coming from, even if they still have a long ways to go. Absolutely. Well, this work, from my perspective, begins with one's identity. Yeah. And so I absolutely want to know their story. Their story is actually is actually central to their to this work, to their work pursuing racial justice. Well, and related to that, I guess is is the the uh, the more equitable organizations that, uh, fortunately, I guess leaders are. Uh, more often now acknowledging the issue and wanting to do something about it. So is a lot of your work, Nika, then one-on-one, obviously you do great coaching or do you get involved in a lot of group dynamics? How literally do you approach that organization that says, hey, we want to be more equitable. So how do you help us? Yes. So I do both. So I do spend the the bulk of my time in one-on-one coaching because I believe that, uh, as I said uh, previously, you know, this is this is a, this is personal work. And so I believe that this work absolutely has to involve the individual um, because it's individuals who make up organizations. Right. And so, um, so I spend the bulk of my time in one-on-one coaching, but I also do uh, organizational training and facilitation with my business partner, uh, Chris Conroy out of Boston. And we've put together Um, a curriculum called the racial equity journey. And so we offer um, racial equity training or guidance, let's call it um, for large groups and also for um, leadership teams as they seek to move, um, move in a more strategic direction around how to implement racial equity into every aspect of their organization. So we do, we do, we do that together. Those are two separate things. And then spend the bulk of my time in one-on-one coaching. Do you see boards of directors getting involved or is it largely kind of on the staff side that you're, I'm sure you're doing a lot of work on the staff side. I'm wondering if you're seeing boards, uh, you know, raising this question more or, and is that part of the work you're doing? Yes. So, you know, boards get involved uh, predominantly through the insistence of their their staff leaders. <laughs> right, right. Good. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, and so I would say, you know, it is the it is frequently the CEO who's determined that this is this is a, a priority in the organization, and that they need to bring everyone in the organization along. And so the training gets extended to board members as well, or is or there is specific training just for board members um, as a part of the overall organizational training process. Well, and we're of course going to draw people's attention in the show notes for this episode, Nika, to the Empathy Agency because they all nonprofit leaders need to think about what they're doing on this front. And obviously, you can offer a variety of uh, support from the coaching to the organizational development and. What during your work, I guess I want to go back to the Collecting Courage, the book that mm-hmm. you edited with your colleagues and put together. Talk about why'd you do it? I mean, were these stories echoing in your ear? And you're like, hey, I need to bring this together. And of course, it it became even more powerful maybe than you originally thought. But talk about why you did it and then what did emerge. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, collecting courage came to us as a gift, if you will. You know, it, as I said before, you know, it's a, it was a document. It is a documenting of our lives and our stories 
by us and from my perspective for us first there was only one answer when you know gail pico called uh my fellow editor uh nicole salmon up and then nicole called me and that was yes and so it was really that simple i and that was without any real conception of what it might be the book emerged out of another project called our right to heal okay uh, which included uh first person narratives uh from 10 black canadian women fundraisers about their experiences of healing from racism in the charitable sector and that project launched um the day after george floyd was murdered after multiple delays and so no one knew Right. Like it was it was supposed to have been launched in January and it ended up getting launched in May. Okay. Right. right. And so um, that changed everything because then the eyes of the world were now focusing on the pain and injustice of black people. And the voices of us black fundraisers were being heard now, even in our sector in new ways. And so that's what uh, sparked the interest um, in doing something more. And so that's the birthplace of collecting courage. And so we we literally signed the book deal with the publisher in July. And by September, the manuscript was finished. And by November of 2020, the book was published. It's fantastic. So and it was a whirlwind. I can imagine, but a whirlwind that needed to happen. And of course, Nika, given your experience, you know, the stories told would not surprise you because you literally experienced them yourself, but did some things emerge that surprised you? I guess mm-hmm. maybe the, I mean, you mentioned how the consistency of these stories was both sad, but perhaps confirming, or did anything else emerge as you went through the project? Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me the most was how the stories just fit together. Right. Like the editor's, and I, we, we, we didn't labor over the order of the book. It like truly fell into place. It just flowed. It flowed kind of naturally, I guess. It, yeah. Like there was just this consensus about whose story should go where. And, and so that was easy. But then even when it went to, you know, Gail Pico, um, she agreed. And then the publisher agreed. And so it, it just was this really fluid process that that really surprised me because I didn't know what to expect, but I thought there might be some back and forth about, okay, how should this come together? And I, and I also think we didn't know what we would get. We knew it would be great, but we didn't know what it was. And so we found out what it was at the same time that we needed to like order the thing. Right. And, (laughs) and, and so it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty special time. Um, and I think all of that speaks to our common experience and how we connect to it and how we share on a deeper level as black people, it, 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 it's almost difficult to put into words the simpatico that was in operation. Yeah. Well, in, in fact, I was going to ask you because you lifted up some powerful stories. I, I'm also guessing you're getting very positive reactions from other fundraisers of color. In fact, are you hearing more stories as a result of putting this book out into the world? 
Absolutely. I mean, some of our authors have written again. So we have authors who wrote for the first time in their entire lives, uh, their story in Collecting Courage. And so it has inspired some of those same authors to write more. We've, you know, all of us, all of the authors have received, you know, messages from readers of color from all around the world, sending us really heartwarming messages, things like this book is life, you know, because they can see themselves in it. And they, they, you know, that validation that comes from knowing you're not alone. These things are happening to other people. You're not, you know, you've, you've not made these things up. It is as bad as you have experienced or remember it. Um, and, and knowing that you belong in a group of people or belong to a group of people, um, who are raising their voice and saying, this is what's real for me has, has a power to it. That is, um, it's difficult to, to describe, you know, I said yes to this book because I believe the stories of Black people need to be told more frequently. And I wanted Black people to know that this is happening to lots of people. I've got to believe that they're not alone. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. But I, I've got to believe there is, I say you described it in your own story, the only Black woman in the room in, in mm-hmm. almost every instance, right? And so there are black men and women that I bet feel that exact isolation. So perhaps this story or these stories give them some courage and, and Nika, w- w- maybe that'll help keep uh, some of these, in this case, fundraisers in our sector. I mean, is that mm-hmm. among your goals that maybe we won't lose those that feel so isolated because they know they're not alone? At 100%. Absolutely. I believe the charitable sector needs black people and um, and and yet I also believe that Black people need to work in environments that are safe and that are um, life-giving. And, um, and so my hope absolutely is one that our fundraisers of color will not leave. But more than that, I hope that our white leaders and colleagues will leverage their privilege to change the environments in which we exist, in which we are suffering and surviving. Well, that's, that's a perfect segue to the question you know is coming, is you're on to something. Of course you are. What do you do with it now? Uh, you, you hinted to me that the success of Collecting Courage might lead to more activity, more programming, or you tell us and tell our listeners, what, what are you going to do to continue to build on Collecting Courage and where do you want to take it from here? Yeah, the editors from the beginning, we, we decided that Collecting Courage was more than a book. We decided that it would be a movement or that it should be a movement. And uh, so because of that, we believe that, you know, with focus and commitment, we can begin to move hearts and minds of nonprofit professionals. Um, And we want to meet and respond to readers who are asking, what can I do? So the editors in a small team are in the process right now of developing a tool 
that will support our readers who are asking, so now that I know this truth or these truths, what should I do? And so we are planning to launch that tool this summer. That's awesome. And well, in, in, at a high level, what will that tool do or what do you hope it will do? Just, I guess, continue to raise awareness, of course, if nothing else, right? Well, actually, it, it, it really is meant to answer the question, what can I do? What okay. should I be doing? Yeah. Yep. Well, that is a question that needs to remain <laughs> front and center. And it leads to a couple of questions I want to ask you, Nika, because you and I talked about it before recording that we need more persons of color in the nonprofit sector, whether it be fundraisers or simply in executive mm-hmm. leadership. So what can we do to get more persons of color into the charitable sector? Are there ideas you might have? I mean, do we need to get into the colleges and universities and and start at that kind of entry level position? Or what do you think on that front? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think that our organizations need to start living our values, not the ones, not just, you know, not just putting them up on the wall, but actually living and demonstrating our values. And if we start doing that in a, in a more concerted way, I think that our organizations will be more attractive. What's an example of that? How, how, I, I, of course, agree with you, but I'm, I'm guessing you'd see inauthentic uh, leadership. Is that fair? And you want to see more kind of authentic leadership as it relates to race and equity and things like that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, every nonprofit organization that I have worked for has had, you know, uh, values that would suggest you know, I could fit in, I could, I could be a part of that organization. But my practical experience in those organizations too frequently was that that was not true. They didn't listen. They didn't, they didn't give you opportunities to advance. I mean, is that some of of those harsh reality, I guess? Absolutely. So, so if we say, you know, accountability, for instance, is one of our values as an organization. Well, when racism happens inside your organization and needs to be dealt with, then that is when accountability, as one example, should come alive. Right? And so I believe that when our organizations more consistently bring our values to life, that's when our organizations will become environments and places where people of color can thrive and can contribute our thought leadership and our talent. We need to talk about it, right? I mean, we need to to, to call mm-hmm. it what it is. Uh, we need to not hide it. And I mm-hmm. guess I'm just thinking out loud that it, because your point is well made. There are a lot of slogans on the wall, but until you see actual evidence of, mm-hmm. of lifting these things, right? I guess that I guess I'm trying to put into, and I I don't mean to oversimplify it, but the practical sense of how do I make my organization stronger in this sense? um, Mm -hmm. I guess it's not a, I can't check the box though, right, Nick? It's just got to be built into the dialogue in in our culture. You you can't check the box. And in fact, you can't even do it alone. You you need to be in proximity to to communities of color as well. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. there are, there are plenty in the uh, nonprofit space that are, you know, looking at the needs and, um, and, 
yeah, the needs of, you know, professionals of color, nonprofit professionals of color, you know, African-American Development Officers Network, Rooted Collaborative, Fabulous Female Fundraisers. These organizations are out there. They're networks that are built to, to offer safety to, um, you know, nonprofit professionals of color. And they have all kinds of thought leadership and solutions, frankly. That's such a good point. That our organizations need. Yeah. Again, one thing to talk amongst ourselves if, if we are the white community, but why not bring in those communities for conversations? I guess we can be more proactive in terms of our searches and hiring practices to make sure those are the main, right? Those are the kind of groups we ought to be networking with if we want to do more than just kind of make hollow statements. Absolutely. And, you know, even changing sort of our paradigm as it relates to, you know, bringing them in, don't bring them in, you go to them. Yeah, good point. You know, how do you how do you build relationship and do community with other groups, with groups that represent communities that are doing all kinds of amazing work? Yeah, and that's why bring your values to life. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, again, I'm glad, you know, this conversation lifts up other, I'm glad you lifted up those organizations because I think that gives some very specific, we can go to them too, and not just expect them to come to us because that's all too often what has happened and created, you know, the inequity you describe. And, you know, can I just say, you know, in our efforts to do this work and to step out and to reconnect, when we go to these groups that we know, um, have the thought leadership and the values that we're looking for, sorry, the value we're looking for, we cannot go expecting it to come to us for free or to be offered to us for free. Yes, right. We have to be prepared to invest. I mean, like any relationship, right? There needs to be reciprocity built into the relationship. Uh, could not agree more. And it, it's it's an investment that needs to happen. And you're right. That's among the things that we can't just sit back and expect these kinds of issues to resolve themselves if we're not proactive and willing to invest. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I'm wondering, Nika, for, for a person of color listening to this conversation, thinking about getting into the nonprofit sector, sadly, do you have to offer words of caution given what you've experienced, or what would you say to someone, again, a person of color that does want to get into the charitable sector? What advice do you offer them? I absolutely caution them. I think that, again, clear is kind, and that's part of being clear is being honest, from my perspective, at least. So, you know, anybody looking to do anything in their life, I think first, what you set up, you're setting up to do needs to align with your own personal values. I think that's a number one uh, that's a, I think that's top of the list. Yeah, good point. Um, and I am a huge proponent of interviewing the hell out of the organization, any organization <laughs> you're considering, yes. you know, like li- really, truly interviewing them, like remembering that they need to demonstrate that the environment you're entering is for safe. And then, you know, secondly, a place you actually want to contribute your talent. You know, I like I'm I just always encourage people to, you know, 
resist the fear of asking tough questions up front, because I believe those tough questions up front can save you a lot of pain and grief later. Such good advice. The interview is a two-way street, isn't it, Nika? Instead of it, just having yep. to answer their questions, we should be asking questions as well. And so, you know, the last thing I would say is get connected in a community. So AADO, the Root of Collaborative, F3, you know, my group, Black Canadian Fundraisers Collective, you have to be in community in order to, to really know what's happening around you and also to survive um, the realities of white supremacy culture. Is there anything else to kind of, again, majority-led nonprofits, most are in this kind of era, that want to do better? Is there anything else they can do? I guess what you just described, kind of an open and authentic communication with candidates, or is there anything else that you've seen organizations that are moving in the right direction? Uh, what are they doing? Or they're, they're humble. And they admit that they don't have the answers. And I think that they begin to reorganize themselves because I believe that people of color need to be at the heart of making change as it relates to racial equity, for sure. And it's not to say that, you know, our white co-conspirators don't have a role to play. They do. White champions should be all around us. Right. Helping to push hard for change. And so I think as much as we want to answer the question of what, like what should we do? I think we should also be pausing and thinking about how do we do it and who should be assuming what roles. It's a great point. I, I, it leads to my question, Nika, what's next for you? Obviously, I hope you're going to continue to do exactly the work you're doing. But as you think personally and for your, your practice, what's next? Where, where do you want to take it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I feel like I've spent quite a bit of time getting to this place. And so I am, I am resisting the, the, the urge or the pressure to continue to do more. And I am going to settle into what I know is my work right now. And so I'm going to continue my one-on-one -on -one coaching and continue um, offering the racial equity journey to organizations. Um, we are in the process of offering that in a, in a complete online uh, format, which is exciting. But I, you know, I believe that um, as much as I, I am offering support in the journey towards racial justice, I'm also a student. And so I, I, I feel it's important that I take time to focus on my own learning, deepening it, and a part of that is, you know, independent study, but it is also being in relationship and in contact with other thought leaders um, in this space and just, you know, standing with them, come, walking alongside them on this journey and allowing their wisdom to permeate my life 
and therefore my work. I love that. And as a, a fellow lifelong learner, I can't help but be curious about some of the topics that you've put on the horizon for study. Of course, we're going to lift up Collecting Courage as a book that I would highly recommend. Uh, are there other resources that have been valuable to you uh, as you have moved through this journey? And of course, I'm going to ask you for a specific book recommendation, but I wonder more broadly, yeah, where do you go for resources for learning? Or is it just within the conversations you have with peers uh, you know, in the community? No, I mean, I, I, I take a multifaceted approach. I am a, an avid reader and I have, um, lately been reading some really phenomenal, um, work by local authors. One is, one is a book called, uh, Towards Braiding and it is, uh, by Elwood Jimmy, uh, who's, who is indigenous and from Ontario, beautiful, um, offering of another way of being in the world. And, uh, and so that, that has been really profound. I recently just finished reading Disorientation by a Canadian author by the name of Ian Williams, also right. extremely validating and, um, and, and expanding in, 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 it helped to expand some of my thinking uh, it challenged me in a number of different ways. And last year, two really amazing books I read, and I would I, I would recommend them both, is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer okay. and uh, My Grandmother's Hands uh, by Resma Menachem. And My Grandmother's Hands is about uh, how to heal from racialized trauma through somatic practices. And the book um, is uh, is focused on Black people's healing, but also white people's healing. And it has in it somatic practices that you can do as a way to process the trauma uh, that we experience as a result of white supremacy culture. And Braiding Sweetgrass uh, is uh, a book about Indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teaching of plants, and how those things all intersect. And it is, it is one of the most beautiful books I have ever read. That's fantastic. What? Well, you've given us a whole half a bookshelf uh, worthy of collection uh, that, and it's it's clear you are an avid reader because uh, I know it was an unfair question, right? Nick could ask you for one book. <laughs> it was. That's just not fair. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we will look at that collection. We'll squeeze as many of them as we can into the show notes because that frankly is representative of this conversation. Lots of value here. And, and, I guess I wonder, yeah, as, as you think about the nonprofit leader listening, uh, is there any other final advice you'd offer them? You know, things that you want someone in our sector or thinking about our sector to consider? Yeah, it's really simple. Resist the status quo and get proximate to communities of color. Yeah, God, I love that. That may well be the quote that on the the uh, graphic banner that stands for this episode. Because yeah, if if they don't take anything else away, Nika, if they took those two things away, uh, they'd be better off, wouldn't they? Agreed, absolutely. All right, well, Nika, this is fantastic. I'm delighted that our listeners have gotten to know you. Where can they find out more about you and the great work you're doing? 
Oh, I'd love for your listeners to follow me on LinkedIn at The Empathy Agency or on Instagram at Anika Allen, or they can visit my website at theempathyagency.ca. We're going to put all those things into the show notes and indeed encourage our listeners to get to know you and the great work you're doing and to remember the important topics you're raising. So for all of this, Nika, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Nika as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your professional journey and maybe help your nonprofit organization be more effective. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Nika and the Empathy Agency and all of the work she's doing across Canada and in the United States. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you'll see the follow button. It'll link you to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this episode, you can click on the episodes button at the top of the page and you can scroll through thumbnails of each and every one of our previous episodes. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.